as a picture on the screen. Imagine a relationship breaks down. If it's a friend, that's okay. You can get over that in time. A friend's hurt you. They've rejected you. They've unfriended you on Facebook. It's a very tiny, insignificant thing for that to happen on Facebook. But, but when it's personal, when it's real, it can be very painful. But if it's not just a friend, what about if it's a spouse? Many of us at church have uh, experienced the reality of relationship breakdown with friendship, but a few of us also know the great heartache of losing a spouse. Someone who says, I want to shut the door and start a new life, not with you, but without you. I love someone else. I don't love you anymore. You can get over it when a friend leaves you. But if a spouse leaves you, it's almost impossible to get over it. You may never will. There will always be wounds. Here is Jesus on the cross, the hero of the Christian faith, and deep darkness has come down on the face of the earth. And what's he experiencing? Why does he scream? Because he's experiencing something he's never felt in all eternity. He's never known. We can barely understand just such a small part of it. But here is Jesus on the cross and he cries out, why? My God, my God, you've forsaken me. Why is he saying that? Well, the answer is found in the Bible. Jesus is, is quoting the Bible. He's quoting a psalm, Psalm chapter 22. It's a psalm from the Old Testament. This is what it says. Why are you so far from saving me? All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax and is melted within me. I'm laid in the dust of death. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But that's not the end. Then it says this. For he has not despised the suffering of his afflicted one. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Future generations will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. For he's done it. His Jesus. He's hanging on the cross. He's experiencing utter abandonment, utter condemnation, not for anything that he has done, but for the sins of the world, for yours and mine and for the rest of humanity. And he's bearing them on his shoulders. And why is he there? What's he, what's he doing? Not just what is he experiencing. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus is feeling utter, infinite abandonment and suffering. He's feeling and experiencing the condemnation of his father. But Psalm 22 tells us that there is a purpose behind his suffering. He is an innocent man dying. He is an innocent man suffering. He is an innocent man who's experiencing separation from his father, but it's far more than that. He's there with a purpose. He's there with a goal. He's not just suffering. He's suffering for love. It's Matthew's passion narrative of King Jesus. He's doing this for a reason. And the reason is this. 
He's not holding on for an endurance test. He's holding on out of love for the glory of his father, that his glory might be made known to the lost world. But he's holding on for you. And he's holding on for me too. He's holding on to rescue a people. He wants to make the glory of his father's name known throughout the world and throughout the ages. But he's holding on for you. He wants to win and rescue a people that without his sacrificial death would be lost for all eternity. We would never be able to experience the light of his goodness, the light of his glory and majesty. We would only feel the darkness, the separation from all those good qualities of God. And you think, okay, well, you said this was about a cry and suffering. How does this help us to understand suffering in the world? There's a huge problem in the modern mindset of why does God, if he's there at all, allow suffering? Through the last century, we saw an enormous amount of suffering. It's very easy just to think of our present suffering, but let's think back and let's remember three names. Hitler, Stalin. Mao. Under the regimes of these three men, it's estimated that 200 million people lost their lives. 200, pe- 200 million people died under the regimes of these three horrific historical characters. But think more closer to home. Think now. We don't face a, a visible army from Germany or Russia or from the Far East. We face a hidden enemy. A pandemic that's shaken the whole globe. It doesn't discriminate from rich or poor or black or white. Everybody's been threatened and afraid of a, a, an enemy that we can't see. And the question is, and it should be from everyone who thinks, where are you, God, if you're there? Where are you there? Are you kind of an aloof grandfather that's fallen asleep on your watch? If you're there and Christians say that you're kind and loving and good, why don't you provide and alleviate and wipe away all this pain? Why aren't you doing anything? After World War II, Germans were struggling to understand the reality of the Holocaust. And there's a play written by a man called Gunther Rüttenborn. He wrote a play called The Sign of Jonah. In The Sign of Jonah, Rüttenborn is exploring who's to blame for the Holocaust. And in the play, one by one, people come onto stage with some limited responsibility, German soldiers, and they say, were you to blame? Was it your fault? Were you there? Yes, I was there, but it wasn't my fault. It was the person above me. It was their responsibility for the Holocaust. And Rüttenborn throughout the play says that each time the person passed the buck upwards, it wasn't me, it wasn't my fault, it was my superior's fault, I was just following orders, it wasn't mine either, it was the general's fault, it wasn't mine, it was the Fuhrer's fault. And, and as the play goes on, no one wants to take responsibility, I was just following orders. It was God's fault. It was God's fault. And as the play unravels, God is put in the dock. God is accused. God is blamed. The evidence is presented. It's the guy at the top. It's his fault. The evil and injustice in the world, it's God's fault. And they end the trial there. They sentence God 
It's so interesting to become a human being, to wander the earth. No rights for God. He's going to be homeless and hungry and thirsty. And he himself shall die. He must die. God must lose a son and suffer the agonies of fatherhood. And when at last he dies, he shall be disgraced and ridiculed, he says in the play. God, God has to die. It's his fault that there's suffering and injustice in the world. He must die, says the playwright. And then in the gospel, from the pen of Matthew, we can see God doesn't just have to die. He doesn't deserve to die. But willingly, he dies for the sins of the world. He doesn't have to die. He doesn't deserve to die. But he came, making the greatest and the longest journey history has ever known and seen. And he came to a cross outside of Jerusalem. The play demands justice. But the gospel brings justice by God voluntarily hanging on the cross. It wasn't his fault. But he came on the rescue mission that the world has never seen like of before. This is the good news of the gospel, even on today, Good Friday. God who comes down like no one else to bear the sin and the evil and the injustice of a lost world throughout history. And so that someday he can return to rescue us rather than to end us. His justice must be satisfied because he's a holy and pure and righteous God. Way back in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 22, there's a story of a father and a son going up a mountain. It's Abram and his promised son, Isaac. And there's a moment in the very touching and moving chapter, Genesis 22, where God says to Abraham, Abraham, now I know you love me, for you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. And a sign that you understand the gospel is now you can say that back to God. Father, now I know that you love me because you shed your blood for me. You gave your best for me. You withheld nothing. And outside of the city of Jerusalem, 2000 years ago, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. And that's how we can understand suffering. God held nothing back. He gave his very best. He's not aloof. He cares. And the God of the gospel, the God of the cross, is the only solution to the problem of suffering. But that's just the first cry. Here's the second. The second cry and the cry of freedom. Freedom. This is not Braveheart. Look at verse 50. When Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Now, that doesn't tell us what he said, but the next sentence, I think, explains it. At that moment, verse 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in top, from top to bottom. There's a number of miraculous events in this one sentence, verse 51, that we don't have time to look at. But the key, the key is about the temple. The key thing to understand is that Jesus is describing something that the temple excluded, that it didn't allow. If you went to the temple in Jerusalem and you you were a woman, You would not get very far. You could not go into the presence of God. If you were a Gentile, you could only go so far. If you were a Jewish man, you could only go so far. There were barriers everywhere. If you were a priest, well, you could go a bit further in. You could go into the the holy place, into the inner sanctum. 
But only one priest, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was manifest, where it dwelt. And he could go in there once a year. And boy, when he went in, he would go in with his knees knocking. He would go in with a rope tied around his ankle so that he could be pulled out if God's uh, anger, his righteous anger, uh, flared out against his sacrifice, if it wasn't appropriate. And so it's like this huge sign that you can see before us. Everything in the Judeo-Christian system was saying no access. You're a woman, you can't get in. You're a, a Gentile, you can't get in. You're a Jewish man, you're a priest, you can only get into a certain place. Even the great high priest could only go in once a year into the presence of God. It's no access. There's no way you can get in. But there's a cry of freedom in sentence 50 and 51. Because on the cross, as Jesus died for the sins of the world, this remarkable thing happens. This huge curtain that was as thick as a man's hand, that was like a, an old version of a sound barrier, was torn not from the bottom to the top, as if someone went in and was having a bad hair day and ripped it apart, but it was torn from top to bottom. God did this. God did this on the other side of Jerusalem as his son gave up his last breath to ransom a people for himself. On the other side of Jerusalem, something miraculous was happening. Not just people getting their life back for them, not just people raising uh, from the grave. But this no entry sign was being ripped in two, not by man, but by God. It was God that did it. And the curtain of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom. And it's, the question is, so what? Well, here's the so what. It is finished. It is finished. If there's a no access sign before God's death on the cross, as soon as Jesus died on the other side of the city of Jerusalem, there's another sign that is written. It is finished. I'm satisfied. No longer will anyone have to bring any sacrifices, any offerings, any perfume gifts, any tithes. It's done. It's done away with. The old has gone. The new has come. There is a new and a living way that you can know me. It is finished. No access, no more. Now there's a new way that you can know me. Now there's a new way that you can come into my presence. And his name is Jesus. That's why Christians can say Good Friday, which is the worst day in history, is at the same time the best day in history. Because God did something by his grace that the world has never seen, that the mind could not imagine. No access, no more. It is finished. Paid in full. So it means freedom. The second cry means freedom. It's not talking about suffering, it's talking about freedom. That you and I can now be free. Free from the tyranny of enoughness, of having to prove ourselves to ourselves through working hard. Free from the tyranny of seeking approval from somewhere at someone else. So we work hard not for ourselves, but so that they will think good of us. A parent that shunned us. Or we parent in a certain way so that others will think we're great unless they really see into our home in lockdown. All these different ways that we seek approval from other people, all these different ways that we're tempted to seek approval from God, rightness from him by getting rightness from other people, God says, it's finished. You can rest. You're free in me. You're free in Jesus by faith. He paid the penalty so that you don't have to. I was satisfied with what he did. 
so I can enjoy a relationship with you if you trust me through him. It's finished. It's enough. Working is done away with. And so as Christians, we can obey God, not because we want his approval. We don't have to read enough. We don't have to do enough. We don't have to give enough. We don't have to go to the right places often enough. Because of Jesus, we can obey out of the approval that he has won for us. Out of the freedom that we can enjoy, we can obey. Not because we have to, but because there's nothing more we want to do than to please the Father in heaven who ransomed us, who rescued us, who will restore us. Obedience is what we want to do out of the approval we now enjoy because of Jesus. He won it for us. No access, no more. Every day we can come and talk to our Father in heaven because we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the King because of the work of Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. The first cry, it deals with the problem of suffering. The second cry, it deals with freedom and approval that we look for in all the wrong places. But here's the third cry as we close. The third cry tells us about life. It tells us about life. In the, uh, the last part of the passage, there's a darkness that still covers the face of the known world. And the centurion in verse 54 says this, Surely he was the Son of God. Now what's really interesting is where Matthew goes next. Who does he include? Who was there? What were they thinking? What were they saying? Because Matthew is not just a reporter, he's also a teacher. And here's Matthew saying this, I think. Notice who understands the gospel. Notice who understands what's going on and notice who doesn't get it. It's really easy, says Matthew. He shows it to us by who's at the cross and their responses. It's really easy to, to think that you understand the gospel, but you don't. It's really easy to think that God should be pleased with you because of your moral effort, but he won't be because none of us are good enough. Matthew does what the rest of the Bible does. Those who think they're good enough for God aren't. Those who think they are terrible are not. Those people who think they understand the gospel, the un who understand the good news, like the religious leaders at the cross, they don't. Those who are outsiders are brought in by his grace. Look at verse 46 and 47. There are people who hear from the lips of Jesus what he says. There are people who see God on the cross. But notice how they respond. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And immediately they say, ah, he's calling Elijah because the Aramaic, my God, my God, it sounds like Eli, Eli, Eli. He's calling Elijah. They've misheard his Aramaic. But what's intriguing is about these religious people. They know their Bible. They've been to Sunday school. They went to church. They've listened to good stuff online. They pity Jesus. They're moved emotionally in their spirits. They offer him something to drink, but they don't get what's going on. They completely miss what's the importance of the events right before their eyes. And then on the other hand, you have another group of people. You have the pagans, the, the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. You have violent men. You have the Roman soldiers. And then in verse 55, at the very bottom, you've got the women. Here are the women who can't get into the temple. Here are the pagans who can't get close to God. Here are the Gentiles who will be excluded from going into the holy place. But those are the very people who get it. 
those are the very people who are responding. Those who are the very people who understand. You can understand the Bible. You can have Christian books on your shelves. You can go to church and yet be missing who Jesus is as the saviour of the world, the rescuer that I needed and that we all need. I think you realise you understand if you're trusting Jesus for your salvation when you stop trusting your good works, whatever it may be. Your hard work rolling up your sleeves is no problem to you. Your understanding of things, your intelligence, your intellect, your prowess, your performance. But actually, here's the only way to be rescued. You need to understand who Jesus is. You need him to be your rescuer. You need him to be your saviour. And that's the very thing he came to do then. And that's the very thing he still offers today. They were right at the foot of the cross. And yet many people didn't get it. History wasn't a problem. They were right there. But spiritually, they couldn't see who Jesus was. It's not about your pedigree. It's not about your past. You've made too many mistakes for God to love you. It's all about grace. It's all about God doing all of the work to rip the no entry sign apart. It's all about God doing the greatest journey history has seen from heaven to earth to rescue you. And the reality of the cross on Good Friday and the reality of the empty tomb on Sunday really does change everything. Every human dilemma that we can think of, we just thought of three. It changes the trajectory of human history and it can change you too. Not just your understanding of the cross and suffering, not just your understanding of the cross and approval and how the cross offers life in the midst of death. The darkest day is the greatest day. But I pray that you would say what the centurion said. Verse 54, surely he is the son of God. It's not just a word of understanding. I'm convicted that's a word of belief. The penny dropped for him. He was right there. He had no religious background. He was an outsider. He killed many, many people. And yet that day, I'm sure that centurion became a Christian, maybe even the first one, because he said, surely he is the son of God.